like a clown, no, those is all pages Bagging, boarding Batman in the gutter like a Macy Storytellers, we some fellas, we some felons in the mazes Acapella, bear a salad, cause this shit is so contagious Mouse on the summaries, compile and gather show While the cycle spitting knowledge on the Yeti like a pro Keep the babble, we the rabble, don't step to the squad We get active and haters like a cephalopod You don't like fish talk, do you hate a tomato? We the cuttlefish killers, tentacles on the table Greatest five stars if you cherish your life Bucky Barnes hit squad spraying lead in your pipe Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Is This Just Bad? Is This Just Bad? The best podcast you never heard of. I'm your host, Professor Miles, joined as always by the CB Cosmologist. Model 3 Generative Android. Model 3 Generative Android. Trash or good? Good, dude. The last toy you ever need. <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking, obviously, of Megan, um, which both of us saw. Curious why you watched this. I watched this because I am a massive doll kills people fan on the record. Uh, yeah, I figured that, that this would have been like Chucky adjacent for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Chucky ran so Megan could dance. And <laughs> it, it, it's it's really interesting to me to to be such a Chucky fan and to have Chucky reemerge on sci-fi and on Peacock as, as a sort of like cultural phenomenon where people are going like, what what the fuck is is Chucky good? Like that's <laughs> right. the question that sort of has been raised in the in the public consciousness as that show has gotten more and more popular and they keep renewing it for season after season after season. And the show is really good. And, you know, the answer to the question of is Chucky good is what well, depends on what the fucking movie you watch. Um, right. Which one? Yeah. And we've come down on you've been saying, like, yeah, the show's great. The movies, not so much. I, I love the movies. I adore The Bride of Chucky. I think that yeah, are, they, are they good, though? The Bride of Chucky is good. That one is a good it, movie. Is that when Jennifer Tilly joins the cast? Okay, well, I mean, that's and like it's there's like a before Jennifer Tilly and after Jennifer Tilly break in the timeline there, right? Well, yeah, there's the original trilogy that follows Andy. Andy is a the sort of like the body that's sutured to Chucky. And those movies, the first one, Child's Play, is very good. And at that point was um, it's 1987. And so they were just doing like, I mean, I, I guess they had had like Job of the Hutt and 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 Return of the Jedi and stuff like that, but like puppetry was still looked very nascent. I mean, the Ninja Turtles movies would come out after that. Like they were figuring out how to do like really good puppetry work and how to make puppets like move and I mean the emote and yeah. Be a great segue to Megan because they did some crazy shit with her. But like this was sort of like this this generative period where they had like gremlins and ghoulies and all this shit. The 80s were just like they were trying to figure out how to make fucking puppets work. And Chucky was part of that sort of like inheritance. And so in 1987, it was like this cultural phenomenon. People were obsessed with him. And then Child's Play 2 came out and it was really good. And Child's Play 3 was the really, really bad one. That's the one that Don Mancini sort of like disowns. And it's like, that is like, we totally fucked it up. And it really is really, really bad. I mean, they recast the, the actor who plays Andy. Um, they set it in this like military school. And it is 
It's just like bizarre mixture of tones. And they realized that they couldn't get uh, enough <laughs> mileage out of the relationship between Chucky and this kid. Chucky had to be like set free from that because what was interesting is Chucky, not the kid. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is why Bride of Chucky introduces yet another doll into the universe. Because it's like, oh, we, the, what, what people are interested in is fucking dolls. Because he's fucking dull mm -hmm. in ways that don't make any sense. And that gives us a lot of room and flexibility to do really creative shit with them, which is also what is really interesting and alluring about Megan is like, how does she work? That is like always the most interesting thing about a Chucky movie is like, how does he work? Like, how is he going to function in the in the in the realm of humans and kill them? Because he's too small. <laughs> And so, yeah, the, mo the movies are are hit or miss, but the there's something about that sort of like having to rely on practical effects and a lot of practical effects and like puppetry to create set pieces because that forces you to be creative, even in one of the least creative like concepts, which is killer doll. Um, yeah. Yeah. Certainly. And that's... um. Megan, God, I love the effects in Megan. They're yeah. awesome. Like this is old school. They don't make movies like this anymore, and they ought to. Where it's mostly the practical effects. It's like a little bit of silicone masks on this like twelve year old girl doing most of the motion for Megan. It really is, you know, the way things ought to be done. Where you have we have special effects um, added to heighten and enhance what is mostly a practical movie. Mm -hmm. Um, most, you know, they're, and they do a really nice job of hiding the CGI when it's being used. It's like little touches and it's mostly just, you know, latex and silicone. Um, and that's, it was really refreshing just like old school, um, special effects, uh, best practices. Wonderful. Um, I came to it because because <laughs> the Tumblr girl is recommended it. Basically, uh, all the Tumblrinas are are into it, and it is it's got kind of like a Jennifer's Body feel to it. Um, in that you know, um, feminist horror tale. Mm -hmm. What's interesting to me about the film specifically is, you know, it got a lot of a lot of social media play, and films like this are tricky because it, it doesn't it's better than it needs to be like it's way better of a movie than it has any right or necessity to be it's it could just be a killer doll movie and it's not just a killer doll movie it's like kind of a terminator movie and it's very clear that the uh, it's a perfect segue from our chat gpt discussion like this is exactly it's very much capturing that zeitgeist of the anxiety about artificial intelligence and it's also apparent to me that I think these scriptwriters read Neil Stevenson. Like the whole concept of this doll, you know, the person creates the doll as a surrogate caretaker that teaches and bonds with the child it's, it's uh, linked to is exactly the Diamond Age. Um, the book, you know, the, the book that, that uh, trains this girl to become a revolutionary hero and killer in the Diamond Age is essentially what's going on with Megan. It's fascinating. And so it's it's hitting a lot of sci-fi tropes that I really like. Um, and it's doing a lot of interesting 
you know, takedown of tech bro bullshit. And um, the only people who die are the ones who basically deserve it. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's delightful um, and much smarter than it, than it is necessary for it to be necessarily. Yeah, and at the same time, it's not, it's not, it's not overall. This isn't, it's not a complicated. Yeah, it's not highbrow. Yeah, yeah, it's simple. And and I think that owes a lot to. So, do you know who the sort of creative architects of this film are? No, I went into this entirely blind. So this is another reason why I watched this. Um, and shout out to Akela Cooper who wrote the screenplay, and Gerard Johnstone for directing it. But the two names that stand out on the sort of production side of this are uh, Jason Blum of Blumhouse, who Blumhouse, sure, finance like Get Out and stuff like that. It has also is kind of like the sort of contemporary producer of all the best horror. Um, co-produced with James Wan. James Wan. Mm-hmm. who did all, all the best doll movies <laughs> has has done annabelle and also has really re like is looking to the 80s to create stories in the contemporary that speak to sort of um persistent sort of issues and mm-hmm. malignant is an example of that malignant is like megan in so far as it is a movie that comes right out of a 1980s sort of playbook, a kind of double feature grindhouse um, sort of like trashy movie um, that has like an exceedingly simple concept at its core, which is, you know, what if one person was two people and the second right. person is bad, um, which is like the same thing as like, what is this movie about? It's killer doll. She's a robot killer. Mm-hmm. Doll. Um, and James Wan has an ability to, and sometimes this works and sometimes it doesn't uh, in terms of like my reaction, but it's always profitable. He has an ability to take and strip characters down and stories down to their sort of like bare essentials to then speak to broader things like parenthood, to speak to broader things. It's honestly mostly parenthood. Um, Like parenthood uh, underlines malignant, parenthood underlines Megan, parenthood underlines Aquaman. Like all of his films sort of distill these concepts down into uh, a very, you know, clear message that is brought to you in the most novel ways you've ever seen and sometimes they're great and sometimes they're not so great um or just boring in the case of aquaman i don't know uh but it, it, yeah it's really really interesting the movie cost 12 million dollars it made 175 million dollars um and this is what's so interesting is it doesn't feel like a cheap movie but it does feel like a small movie yeah you know it feels like a movie you can reasonably make for 12 million dollars or whatever because it's mostly just a girl in a latex mask and that's great. <laughs> yeah, and they and they have to in the set pieces and the kills which are sort of like the draw of the movie. I mean, the movie is is trying to negotiate various elements of horror films and that requires like some sense of heart at the center of it. And so you have this relationship between Allison Williams and 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 her daughter or her her sister's daughter. This is like this movie started the same way Shazam starts, which is like <laughs> parents yep. just die violently in a car crash. 
Um, there was another movie that came out around that time that had the exact same like opening scene. Um, and so it's like that, that relationship sort of anchors the story and you need other evil people surrounding them. And so you have like the Ronnie Chang character and the tech bros and the people who are um, the, the guy, the weird assistant who's stealing company secrets and doing like corporate, esp corporate espionage and is to a degree sort of like uh, justified in what he's doing. And so you like need all of those elements, but you also need set pieces that are both like stimulating and also cheap to produce. Yes, and that's the most important thing. Like, this is a sort of movie that, like, you could see a real, like, uh, RoboCop 2 situation if it got super popular and they tried to make a sequel. Of You know, it could be, like, huge overwrought set pieces with, with a ton of CGI and a ton of explosions. And this is a fairly restrained film. You know, the people Megan kills kill somebody in a shed, kill somebody in the woods. Yeah. Um, kill a dog off. They're fair... Yeah, fairly low low impact and like cheap to produce. And I appreciate that because they're not it doesn't make them they're still satisfying horror movie set piece kills, but they don't make them like that's not the draw of the movie. That's not like the oh you got to see this crazy kill. It's mostly suspense actually. It's mostly just like images of watching Megan, you know, in low lighting like, is it awake or not? Is it listening to you or not? Um, mm. What's it thinking? That's the stuff that's more most engaging, and that's also very cheap to produce. You just have to shoot it well. Yeah, yeah. No, the the. I mean, and one of the things that Megan does that, uh, like James Wan does really well, and that is also sort of a callback to eighties horror slashers, is Megan kills somebody with a paper cutter, and this is like a very um, th this is something that was so effective in horror movies back in the day, which is like, what's something that people use all the time that can fucking absolutely kill you? And it is so weird because in that moment, he's winking at the audience because how many people knew what the fuck that thing was? Right. Why did it even have a paper cutter in, this <laughs> in, tech in, office? in a tech office? Right. It's so fucking bizarre. Like malignant kills people with like trophies, which I guess more people are familiar with that. But it's like, yeah, the 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 kills are hearkening back to like a previous time of like, you know, I could see Mike Myers like grabbing a paper cutter and like stabbing mm -hmm. it. And it also speaks to why horror works. Of it destabilizes by making the familiar unfamiliar by twisting and you know taking something that you're that you're totally comfortable with you don't think about and asking you to think about it in a new way it's part of the reason stand-up comedy works like you know forcing you to take something that you are you don't think about very often and then shining focus on it in the horror's case rather than like making you laugh although this movie is also very funny um it uh it asks you to like be afraid of a paper cutter or whatever. Well, um, yeah. So yeah, the real like, good. I was going to say we had the distinct experience of watching this with a nine year old. Um, so we mm. went over to our, uh, our, 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 my colleague and friend's house. And so like we, 
is this the girl who is very comfortable with the idea of vampires because she uh, knows how to kill them? <laughs> the exact Love this girl. Yeah. Friend yeah. of the podcast. <laughs> Friend of the podcast. We've, we've been trying to, oh, I've been trying to sort of like curate her sort of like entree into horror along with her mom, obviously. Um, and so we text back and forth and she's like, what do you, what do you think about this? And I'm like, it's too, it's too weird. And and one of the things that we sort of have landed upon is that generally speaking, if it is something that takes place in a home, it's probably too scary. Because or like if 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 it's a regular as per so one of the things I brought up was Scream. I think Scream is a great movie to show to kids when they're young to get them into horror because it has the same kind of camp elements that Megan has. The issue with Scream, though, is that it is a person in the ghost face costume. Yeah, it's just a regular ass person. Yeah. yeah who's killing all their friends in their houses. <laughs> and so that one might be like, uh, we might have to wait a couple. Of yeah, years. you don't you don't have the layer of removal of it's a mythical creature with predefined rules. It's just like a person who's adhering to rules, but they're just a regular person. I think that is too close to home. That makes sense. Literally, <laughs> too close Literally. in the home. Yeah. But Megan's fascinating because that's a <laughs> that one has a has a home that is too smart for its own good. Yeah, like when she goes when she goes back to the house after leaving from the product launch and like goes home and. It, my wife and I are both staring at the movie and screaming, like, just unplug everything in your house. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Unplug it. Yeah. And it was also very funny, too, because before we started watching the movie, we, <laughs> she, uh, the young girl, was having like a fucking fight with the Amazon Echo because the Echo was not yeah. like answering the questions correctly <laughs> that she was asking as she was getting like a little frustrated and then we saw this movie that that's like a central plot element uh that's which awesome but like as, so as she's watching the movie it's like oh is she fucking horrified by this like maybe we didn't think this one through because this girl is literally the same age as her um mm -hmm. and at the end she was like that was the perfect amount of scary no which is great. That's great. Um, yeah, and I think that I mean that speaks well of this girl also that like that kind of movie I think can be really kind of empowering of like she sees her herself represented on screen. She sees a girl going through trauma that like you know God forbid doesn't happen to her, but could you know going through emotions that kids have. Yeah, um, yeah I think that's great. Yeah, and so one of the things that was also interesting about this too is that. I think this movie was made for kids for like parents to watch with their children um, because it's not very scary. I mean, as far no, as like, like my sensibility, it's not scary at all, but for her, it was like a little scary. Um, mm -hmm. And what it does is it takes like, like millennial and gen X stuff and it puts it into the movie and requires, and it's like a wink at your nostalgia that requires you to explain something to a kid, like what a paper cutter is Furbies. or what, oh, a okay. no, like yeah. all of those things, like everything yep. is like very nineties in the movie. You could tell somebody wrote it who is a millennial or like mm -hmm. a Gen X or uh, like young Gen X or um, like down to like the soundtrack and shit like that. And so it was very, very 
very sort of interesting and also fun to be like, oh, you don't know what Furbies are. Let's show you what Furbies are. And to them to not be that removed from what they're making is also like you're seeing it and you're like, oh, that's an absurd, crazy looking toy that nobody would ever pay any amount of money for. And you go, well, let me tell you about Furbies. People used to pay <laughs> thousands of dollars for those fucking ugly pieces of shit. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. Very cool. Yeah. I'm uh, glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I really enjoyed it, too. I, You know, I, I'm a big James Wan supporter. I think that he is important for, like, cinema. Like, to still be able to bankroll and make $12 million movies and have them. Absolutely. Still- money is so important especially now a funny note about megan too and this is on the on the wikipedia um is that they delayed its release um because they didn't want to have competition with the new house party reboot and uh with the tom hanks movie a man called otto and to to i don't know what the crossover there is they just didn't want to compete for box office like space. Okay. Um, but you know, House Party, like I don't, I don't know that it released theatrically at all. Maybe it did, but it was like on HBO Max almost immediately. Um, and mm-hmm. I is not good, which is a shame because I really loved the original House Party and Tom Hanks's movie. Like it made money, but it was like kind of an Oscar play, and he got no buzz. Yeah. And it cost 50 million. He made a hundred million. Like Megan ate both their lunches, um, which is extremely funny to me. I can't believe that they didn't realize it was going to be a slam dunk. Like if you watch that movie, if you screen that movie for like a distributor, they go anybody. Yeah. Release it any fucking weekend. There's no Marvel movie and we'll make the amount of the amount of money that we're that we made. No, I think it's and, and it's not seasonal and you can just drop it anytime you want. And it's um yeah, it's just a it's really good. And it's I think you're totally right about this. It's important to keep making movies like this, like slick concepts, really clear messages, simple story, um, low budget, and just like it's a nice little aperitif of a movie, you know? It it doesn't overstay it's welcome it's not it's not super bloated it doesn't require a ton of world building it's just a clear single thing to say it's you know really goes back to basics of movies as short stories yeah for sure um you know since teddy's not here we should discuss the lamar lamar jackson stuff Oh God! Speaking of <laughs> the opposite of a short story, <laughs> Jesus, yeah the the continuing saga of Lamar. So this is they have signed Lamar to a is this right a non exclusive uh franchise tag? Yes, is it, it yes the non exclusive tag? Um, this is a shock to everybody. Um, the general consensus among the experts was that they were going to give Lamar Jackson the exclusive franchise tag, which would have them pay him $45 million, but he would not be able to negotiate with other teams for a deal. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind that was, okay, we will tag him this year, keep him on the Ravens. And in the, in, in the sort of case that he is, um, 
we can strike a deal, uh, then we'll do that. In the case that he sits out, we'll trade him for sure. Like that was sort of like what people assumed the Ravens were going to do. The non-exclusive tag was not on the table because with the non-exclusive tag, you pay less, but Lamar is able to negotiate with all the other teams in the league. And so anybody can offer him any amount of money or contract, however it's structured with incentives and guarantees. And the Ravens either have to match it or let Lamar walk and then receive two first round draft picks in return. So here's here's the deal. Lamar Jackson's trade value exceeds two first-round draft picks. Mm-hmm. So th- there's no way that Steve Boucher, unless he absolutely screwed this up, Eric DaCosta, I mean, there's no way that Eric DaCosta like, put this non-exclusive tag on him with the optimal end goal being we get two first-round draft picks back. There's no way. There's something else at work. Either so here's what what I'm thinking. My immediate knee jerk is Lamar doesn't have an agent. No. This kind of like a it's risky, but kind of like big dicking him a little bit to be like, all right, go ahead. You can negotiate with anybody you want. We don't feel like paying you the big money. Mm-hmm. Um, you got if you, you got the time, you can talk to anybody. Knowing he doesn't have an agent, he doesn't have the time, and he's not going to be able to negotiate a better deal with anybody else. The idea of sure, you feel free to talk to other teams. They're not going to give you this money either. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely part of it. Like, I think that so. The Ravens went to Miami to meet with Lamar and his mom in his house. That meeting was was, was supposed to be like, we're finishing it. The shit stops here, friends. Like we're right. we're, we're going to come to your house. We're going to work this out. Yeah. They could not finalize a deal. And nobody knows what Lamar's ask is because nobody's leaking information. This is the other weird thing about this negotiation is that usually people are leaking shit constantly to the fucking right. press. And it's usually agents and representatives who are putting out information or disinformation, um, uh, uh, you know, strategically. But none of that is happening. Nobody knows except Lamar and his mom. And so none of like, they're, they the Ravens have leaked that they're a hundred million dollars like gap between what Lamar wants and guarantees and the Ravens are willing to offer. But like, we don't have any concrete like figures. We don't really know right. because it's just Lamar and it's just his mom. So I and think usually when agents leak stuff, it's a, you know, it's a tactic, right? To like yeah. put information out there, but Lamar can't play those tactics because he's not an agent. <laughs> right. But I also think that it is working in his favor because, uh, well, it, it, it so, I think probably what happened is the Ravens just like reached loggerheads with him. And he said, I'm not doing less than 250 million guaranteed because I'm better than Deshaun Watson, which he is Mm -hmm. like, it's not Lamar's fault that the market got fucked up by a horrible organization. Like the Browns fucked the market up. That's not on Lamar. And also it's not even really on the Browns. Like that's just how I like, all of these, I have no sympathy for these rich people. They're fucking capitalists, right? They yeah. go the way the market goes. The market has reset. And when the market resets, like there are new expectations for you and you're the consumer here. Like Lamar is supplying the fucking start. Like you have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. So I think the Ravens gambit is 
like you're saying, Lamar is going to go out on the open market and he's going to realize that there is no organization as bad as the Cleveland Browns that is going to yeah. make him an offer that is fully guaranteed at above $230 million. And so when inevitably he does come to terms with somebody, the Ravens are going to match it because Lamar right. will have been whittled down to accepting 175, 180 million guaranteed. Um, and, you know, have like incentives and other things in, in his contract structured that way. Yeah, I can totally see the conversation being basically the Ravens saying, fine, go talk to other people. If you don't think what we're offering you is fair, see what other people will offer you. Lamar's going to realize there's a cap to what other people are willing to offer. And then, like you said, whatever any other team offers him is going to be within the ballpark where the Ravens are willing to match it. Um, and say, yeah, that's a totally reasonable number, but they basically, they need other teams to then be their second opinion to right, yeah. force Lamar to, to play ball with them. Because right now it's just his word against theirs. And since he wants to bet on himself, the only logical solution is, all right, go ahead and bet on yourself. See what other people are willing to pay you and then come back to us when you get a different number. Cause this is the only number we're willing to give you. Yeah. I yeah. think you're totally right. I mean, it, w- it will see. I mean, the, you know, there, <laughs> there is also talk, and I, I don't put this past the owners, that there's they're trying to make an example out of Lamar Jackson. Um, that like don't go into business for yourself. Yeah, don't go to yeah. So there are a lot of people that he's challenging right now. He's challenging the owners and he's challenging the agents. And those are like the mm-hmm. prime prison shakers in the NFL, right? And right. so the idea that people have been sort of saying is that like right after this news broke, the Carolina Panthers said, we're out. The Atlanta Falcons said, we're out. Oh, and, as in we are not even going to talk to Lamar. Yeah. Like we don't, we're not interested. Um, which is a, a canny negotiation tactic, you know, to just, just be like, ah, oh, you're available. Oh, we don't want you, you know, <laughs> come, come groveling to us. But it's like Lamar doesn't work that way. Cause he's not an agent. So you're right. Gonna- figure out another way to approach this because you do want him. I know for a fact that Mm -hmm. Atlanta and Carolina do want him and this shit that would normally work on a, you know, you know, three piece suit wearing fucking agent with the $10,000 shades is not going to work on Lamar because he's gonna be like, wait, what? You don't want me? I'll go fuck yourself. Um, (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) He's not going to play the like weird diplomatic doublespeak. (laughs) Right, right. So that immediately happened, but then that raised people's eyebrows and they were like, wait a second, is it possible that the Ravens are orchestrating things behind the scenes to get all of the owners to settle upon a number to reset the market from the Deshaun Watson thing and sort of like cast it as a retroactive sort of aberration? Because what, what Lamar gets is going to be what Burrow gets. What Lamar yeah. gets is going to be what Herbert gets and what Trevor that's Lord- a, That's the fascinating point is all the owners probably got out of a room and went, we can't let this happen. Mm-hmm. We can't let Deshaun be the new baseline. So we have to figure out a way to, like you said, reset the market so that Deshaun is this weird exception. And also, Deshaun's not worth all that money. <laughs> No, but like that's a totally se- that's a totally separate. Just because the Browns fucked this up for everybody, <laughs> um, and this it's weird. Like 
I am generally pro player and pro let them get their money. I'm also personally anti Deshaun Watson. That's a bad person. <laughs> he's a bad dude and he's not a good football player. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, they're all, you know, they should all get their money, but not him and not that much because he doesn't deserve that much. Even yeah. if Lamar does. Yeah. Yeah. I don't so, know. yeah. So is that illegal for the, <laughs> all of the owners to be like colluding? It, it, you know, like that's like that white collar crime shit. Like, I feel like it absolutely right. illegal. But uh, who's going to dis like Roger Goodell's going to discipline them? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's just the fucking plot of an episode of, of succession at that point. It's all absolutely illegal and it's all backroom deals and nobody's going to get caught or yeah. do anything. Yeah, I don't know. So it 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 also does kind of seem like it was it was interesting because I was like, okay, so they're destroying the relationship. They're just like absolutely fucking this whole thing up. The Ravens are never going to get Lamar back into the building. And I was listening to uh, LaShawn McCoy talk on his show. And LaShawn McCoy was like, and this is an interesting perspective. He was like, there, I, you know, we've, I've been on teams where there were like these long contract negotiations and it seemed like guys are never going to be happy ever again. And, and the locker room is a whole giant mess and shit like that. And then the moment they get paid, they just come back onto the practice squad. Like, and they're just like happy. Like nothing ever happened. <laughs> like nothing ever happened. <laughs> so maybe they're salvaging the relationship. Maybe they can salvage the relationship here. Um, if if in fact Lamar gets an offer sheet that the Ravens feel like they can match, and then he comes back to Baltimore, and then hopefully it's just all sort of copacetic. Mm -hmm. that, that's fascinating. Yeah, and it does make sense that like if Lamar's not listening, the only way forward is like, all right, just talk to some other people and see what they'll offer you. And I think you're totally right that the chances are. What's really happening is talk to some other people that we have already talked to and we've all already decided what the maximum number is going to be. And it's just like a shell game at this point. Like he's going to talk to however many people, other teams he wants to, but they've all all they have all already probably set a maximum limit on what they've all agreed they're going to offer him. Mm. And it's just going to like force him back to Baltimore, which is a scam, basically. Yeah. God. Yeah, I and if he had an agent, they could, the agent could probably just tell him that and like skip this whole process of you don't want to do this, dude. You're being scammed because that's the way the industry works. Mm. Sorry, and yeah. that that's a bummer. Yeah, it would be an an inauspicious exit. Um, speaking of inauspicious exits, so you're on Tumblr. How much have you read about Grant Gustin? In the last couple of days, uh, not I'm not on that side of Tumblr. I guess, um, basically every all the Tumblrinas I follow gave up on uh, the Arrowverse a while ago. So, um, I know that his relationship with the Flash show was fairly fraught. It's just like emotion. Towards the end, it look, looks like he kind of went through. He was going through something similar to that Stephen Amell went through, which is just getting ground down by the shooting schedule of it's on forever. He's and he and just like Grant Gustin and just like you know Jared Padalecki, they're all anxious people anyway. They're like anxious actors. 
And so there's this whole, I mean, we, we saw this with Chris Evans too, of just like the, it will beat you down eventually to be on this grind representing, you know, the shining paragon of virtue forever. So that's the broad strokes. What are the details that I'm missing? I mean, just that he's done with the character. It's over. The flash is coming to an end and he he shared this like, um, you know, this Instagram post of him hanging up the suit, which looks awful. <laughs> yeah, the suit looks <laughs> like shit. With the caption, hanging up my suit for the last time. And people are like devastated by this. And ah, man, it, it never made sense to me. This, the reason that I. That show has not been good since season two. And that's shocking that you said that because the reason that I quit the Arrowverse is because I could not make it past season one of The Flash. Like, really? I had gotten to the point where in the Arrowverse run where the, the Flash premiered and mm-hmm. there was a crossover episode with Stephen Amell and Grant Gustin early on in the run and they were like starting to build a shared universe. And I was like, okay, so I guess I have to watch this. And I'm like, the, the episodes are only 40 minutes long. Even if it's bad, I can get through this, right? Yeah, how bad can it be? It was fucking horrible. I could not. Yeah. I couldn't get through it. And I was like, I knew that Green Arrow was corny and bad. Like, I knew that. As I was watching, I was mm-hmm. like, yeah. like, corny. I think that these actors are much better than this show. Um, but it was also interesting. It was like a soap opera for fucking teenagers with yeah. Arrow. And that was cool. Um, but then when they introduced, like, a new set of actors who were, like, somehow worse, and I'm like, yes. oh, no, this show is as, as good as these actors. Like in in Arrow, I, I believe the actors are better than that show. In the Flash, I feel like it's perfect equilibrium. <laughs> like that show and those actors are married together and perfect. And so then it had me going to like think about in retrospect. The only reason Arrow is good actually is because Stephen Amell is much better than the material. And yes, Stephen Amell and some of his supporting cast, and you can tell that because um. The woman who plays the first Black Canary is terrible. Um, she's in early seasons of Supernatural also, um, playing a demon. And the thing with Supernatural is demons can could possess people, so they body hop. And that same character, um, uh, Ruby, is the demon's name. Um, the, her first host is the actress who goes on to be um, the the first Black Canary in Arrow, and she's awful. And then as soon as that actress leaves and Ruby is a new actress who goes on, that actress goes on to be um, Jared Padalecki's wife, actually. Uh, they get married in real life. Um, character's awesome. Really, really good, because the yeah. actress is good. The writing of that character didn't change because, because that demon is the same character across different people. The motivations of that character are consistent. The performance of that character is wildly different because that actress is bad. And you can tell on Arrow that, like, she is as good as the Flash actors. Like, it's that level of soap opera, daytime TV. There's not much there. Stephen yeah. Amell is elevating the material. Um, the Diggle is elevating the material. Like, that guy can act. David Ram- uh, Deathstroke. Yeah, Ramsey's great. Uh, Deathstroke. Elevating the material, giving it all kinds of Shakespearean gravitas that it doesn't probably deserve. Right. Uh, and you know, that a... show starts to go off the rails also as soon as Deathstroke leaves. 
um, yeah. as you get new characters and new actors who are basically like bottom of the barrel, lowest common denominator CW level, and you get to the, the point of, oh, the actors are rising to the level of the material right. uh, as opposed to elevating the material. Yeah. 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 And no. it's just it's just brutal. And The Flash is like that, too. And the only reason the first season of The Flash is good is they've got a really tight story with Eobard Thawne and, like, the betrayal angle and the mistaken identity thing. And they just basically try to replay worse versions of that in future seasons. And it's just truly, by the end, unwatchable. Um, they've done an adaptation in the last, last season of The Red Death from uh, Scott Snyder's Dark Knight's heavy metal stuff. But it's oh, yeah. so, you know you know one of the alternate Batman, but it's Javico. I don't remember how to say her name. Uh, Leslie's um, Batgirl. Now Ryan, Ryan, whatever her name is in the character, the 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 non Ruby. Oh, the replacement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The replacement for Ruby Rose. Um, but they're giving her like Batman lines. And it's just like, we wanted to use Batman, but we're still stuck in this, like, old-school Arrowverse, can't use Bruce Wayne thing. Mm -hmm. And we've got, we canceled Bat Batwoman, we've got this actress, so we're going to put her in very, very sweet, comics-accurate Red Death armor. And then give her lines that don't make sense for her character, give her motivations that only make sense for Bruce Wayne and not for her, because she's not Bruce Wayne, she's like a different person, she's not even Kate Kane, like, she's, mm -hmm. she's a totally different person, and so trying to shoehorn her into this evil Batman route doesn't really make sense um, for her character. And it's just like all over the place and just kind of lost. So um, the only thing I've seen about Grant, Grant Gustin is people are still fan casting him into he's going to somehow show up and replace Ezra Miller. Which what? would be preferable, but I don't think is ever going to happen. I... I... <sighs> Is Grant Gustin a better actor than Ezra Miller? I mean, we're really de debating whether or not to eat a bowl of hard shit or diarrhea. At that point, I mean, like, what? Yeah, you couldn't just, like... The fact that, that that's what people's heads are out as opposed to just vaporize Ezra Miller on the cosmic <laughs> treadmill and cast a new Wally West and just move on with our lives is wild to me. It would be better. It would be better to do a nationwide search to find a brand new actor to play Wally West than to mm -hmm. replace Ezra Miller with somebody we know is mediocre. Yep. Like Ezra Miller is is, is profoundly mediocre. I won't argue against that. Grant Gustin is 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 the same. Like there's no yes. difference to me in quality. Grant Gustin seems like a nicer person, but. That has nothing to bear on like the screen. Right. Yeah. Just being a better human being is not make that like a more interesting character on screen. Right. So yeah, the I know that the this last this final season of The Flash is also truly the end of the Arrowverse. Superman and Lois is off doing its own thing. Which is a real shame because there's um there are missed opportunities there for folding a Melissa Benoist and like yeah. some of the Kryptonian stuff they built when when um, Tyler Hoechlin first appeared in Supergirl. Like the early season Supergirl stuff, they have a really 
clear understanding of what Kryptonian culture is like, and they just kind of whiffed on that. But it's in its own world. It's doing its own thing, whatever. It's okay. Um, but it's very much not connected. The Flash is going to, like, bring back Stephen Amell for an episode and bring back the Legends of Tomorrow maybe for an episode. And, like, it's really trying to do a swan song for the entire Arrowverse because it's the last thing left. And I appreciate them doing that as kind of like a greatest hits farewell tour. I'm not even sure I'm going to watch it, though. Like, I don't know if I want to see Stephen Amell again. He had a good send off as the Spectre and the Crisis on Infinite Earth thing. It might, you know, it's time to just put these folks to bed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some people are getting put to bed and some people are staying awake. And uh, James Gunn is triggering toxic DC fans and he's doing it all oh, is it because he's too woke <laughs> no he is he 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 I think he's figured them out and he knows that he knows what he's doing so he has been retweeting positive reviews of Shazam Fury of the Gods okay. movie movies come out I think it's an advanced previews and so it's still like the critical uh, uh, reviews are still locked. It doesn't have mm-hmm. a rock score yet. Um, but some people have seen it and some people have talked about it and he has retweeted several people saying that the movie is better than the original, that David S. Sandberg is like, like the kind of shit that is a veiled critique of the original DCU. He's doing it. Mm-hmm right way they're scaling appropriately they're introducing new characters and new characters are interesting he's adding more dimensions to the protagonist like everything you want from a sequel yeah like i'm saying it and it's like the most basic shit you can say like okay like, hey, it's a functional film it's short of short of like short of saying like they didn't add batman in this one like they didn't bring Batman into the movie and fucking distract from all of the focus on the central character. Like they didn't do this too quick. Like that's the kind of shit he's retweeting. And people are going insane. They're hashtag boycott Warner Brothers Discovery, hashtag boycott James Gunn, hashtag fire James Gunn, hashtag fire David F. Sandberg, hashtag release the air cut. Please, God, please. That's so funny. He's absolutely doing this on purpose now. Yeah. Like he, I think you're right. He's t- he has figured because he's smart enough and also terminally online enough and also enough of a jerk to like mess with people on purpose. Got the time, apparently. <laughs> yeah, apparently. He probably just like, you know, takes a break between writing sessions of the Superman script, just get on Twitter and fuck with people. God. <laughs> Good for him, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Are you excited? March is like a huge movie month. There's so much shit that's coming out. You got Creed 3. You got Shazam Fury of the Gods. Ant-Man Quantumania is still out in theaters. Like, this is a massive movie month. Are you at all caught up or interested in the Creed films? Um, No, and maybe. I saw a really interesting interview with um Michael B. Jordan talking about his anime influences um for the fight scenes in creed 3 and um and also like anime influences and kind of shown and influences on the whole like creed plot line but they do like a side by side of like a there's a thing where um uh 
Creed just gets like a huge gut punch to him, and it's like a zooming of his back, like um, buckling, and it is a shot for shot, just like Vegeta getting the shit punched out of him by uh, by um, Goku or something. And it's like, okay, I see you, <laughs> I see what you're doing, and I appreciate that. That's really cool. So, yeah, it looks neat. But no, I remember you goofing on um, the first one for like a really bad Philly accent. Uh, yeah, yeah. Tessa, test. I mean, they don't do Tessa any favors. I think that she is. Um, there's something very inauthentic about her playing the character she plays in those films, um, like down to several different parts of that character's identity that don't mesh at all. Um, and it, the only way to know what I'm talking about is to watch it. I mean, it's it's really strange. Like they just add all of these layers and dimensions to this character, and Tessa Thompson embodies none of them, absolutely none hmm. of them. Um, and so it's just like should have cast somebody else. Yeah, like the character is like is 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 hearing impaired. The character is like from the dead ass hood of Philly. The character is a very talented musician. Tessa Thompson is none of those things. Um, and she she's a great actor, but like yeah very hard to straddle all of these different identities at the same time and make it believable in the story. And so oftentimes she comes off as just kind of playing Tessa Thompson and the rest seems like excess almost, um, which, mm -hmm. which is strange. The other thing that is, that is strange, but also very interesting is that. So I, I was talking with somebody about this and I couldn't think of any other example of like this type of franchise reboot. So they did six Rocky movies with Sylvester Stallone. Mm -hmm. And those are like sports movies that detail um, a very sort of like pro uh, American imperialism, pro yeah, I was I was having this conversation with my wife about Sylvester Stallone recently because I don't think she's ever seen any of those movies. But um, we were talking about how like the first Rocky movie and the first Rambo movie are basically the same in being like really small, like clever, anti-imperial, like anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist movies about like little guys, and yeah. they're like both incredible. And oh, we were talking because the beginning of Punisher season two, I think, is just identical to uh, First Blood. And there's an episode of Supernatural that's literally just First Blood again, where you know the boys are in a cabin setting traps for a bunch of cops, and they're really, really good, and they're really, uh, you know, working class, um, kind of subversive films. And then Sylvester Stallone both times they immediately get popular and he immediately sells out <laughs> and all the sequels are just like this like rah rah hulk hogan nonsense and he's just got this pattern of do it having like really really clever small really insightful ideas and then like turning on a dime to make a buck which is just it's a fascinating character trait for sylvester stallone but so to your point those franchises just like he like sees an opportunity to capitalize, and good for him. He, he makes a bunch of money, mm -hmm. but 
I don't think I've ever seen a Rocky sequel, and I've definitely never seen a Rambo sequel, and I love the first film of both of those franchises. Yeah, 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 yeah. The 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 interesting thing about the Rocky reboot with Creed is that they centralize a character who is not related to the protagonist at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Creed- it's the son of the of Apollo Creed who gets beaten to death by Dolph Lundgren, right? Yes. Um, and so that's a weird wrinkle in it. And the other weird wrinkle in it is that Rocky's in it and playing like the dad. Now, is he just in the first Creed? He's in the first and the second Creed. They booted him out of the third Creed and he was like, they're making a mistake and it came like the critical reviews are better than the second one where yeah. he kind of ate shit in the movie. But it is just so strange to me. Like, I couldn't think of another franchise where it's like so very thinly related to the originals. There's six movies of source material, and it's so very thinly related to the originals. Because basically, the what you know, one of my coworkers was asking me, Do, should I go wa- watch the original Rockies? Because I want to watch Creed 3. And I was like, I don't even think you have to watch Creed 1 and 2 to watch Creed 3. You definitely don't <laughs> have to watch the Rocky movies. Like, those movies are yeah. barely related. All you got to know is that Rocky was a boxer one time. His best friend was a guy named Apollo Creed, and he gets killed, and his son is in the lead of the movies. That's it. That's really it. It would be like if Angel, after spinning off from Buffy, never mentioned Buffy ever again. Like, and no other Buffy characters appeared. Yeah, it's so... You know, Charisma Carpenter never showed up in Angel or something. It's so thin. They barely reference the original six movies. And there's six of those fucking things. And Stallone was, like, so, you know, is so involved in all of his films. He was, like, a kind of rock-like figure in his day. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's, it's strange. I couldn't think of another franchise. Because, like, all the Star Wars movies, I feel like they do it... the in the opposite direction where it's like too much. You're just talking about the original shit way too much. And with Rocky, I find like with the Creed movies, they really benefit from shedding a lot of the, the lore, including the entire character of Rocky in the third movie. They're just like, this is going fucking nowhere. That's like saying, let's get rid of Luke. Well, they did. That's like saying, let's get rid of all all of Yeah. Well, so remind I mean, is it Creed 2 that has Dolph Lundgren in it also and like it's Dolph's son fighting Creed? Yes, but the way that they 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 so the way that they did that movie was So here's a here's a kid who's growing up in Ukraine. And his dad was a former boxer and was basically excommunicated from Russia because he lost the fight. And this is something that that you hear about a lot, particularly because, you know, that movie, I guess, took place during the Cold War and shit like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Like if you lose to the American and you're dead to us. Right. Um, And so what what they do is they set up an interesting foil. Right. And so there's a son with a dad and the dad is like brutal and 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 just like so uh, punitive and so cold and you know puts the son in 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 a position where he can't explore talk about his feelings and the and you get the sense from 
the son's performance where it's like all he really wants is to like like his dad but also he's like a gigantic you know genetically gifted athletic freak who can like really really you know uh satisfy his dad's desires by going out beating the shit out of people when it, it seems like he would he would you know rather not do it and so you have that and then you have the opposite which is uh adonis creed doesn't have a dad mm -hmm. at all and so he is has absolutely no guidance and the guidance that he does have is good guidance like rocky is giving him good advice and he's not taking it and so you <laughs> have you have these like two perfect foils here where it's like it doesn't fucking matter that Dolph Lundgren killed his dad. That was that was one of the things that was so baffling to me about the movie where it was like, wait a second. So you're going to avenge your death by fighting his son who was not alive when his dad boxed your dad and your dad died in the ring. So you, what's the revenge? Right, so we're gonna you're gonna fight his son, but there is no actual vengeance tale here. That's no. very strange. There's there's nothing. There's nothing there. Like <laughs> it is such a non non issue where they really try to drum this thing up. And as we're watching the movie, we're like, this is probably one of the weakest, like one of the weakest conflicts that I've ever seen in a movie because this is not an issue. Like no reasonable person would have an issue. If anything, he'd want to fight the guy that killed his dad, not the guy's son. The son had nothing to do with it. He wasn't there. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh God. It's so fucking weird. Um, and uh, yeah, so the, the, the movie is, is, is set up in a way where you do not have to watch Rocky four to understand or appreciate the dynamics that are occurring. You can understand an overbearing dad and a son who's trying to like um, please him with his actions. And you can understand somebody who doesn't have guidance or who rejects guidance that is, um, you know, intended to be in his best interest, but he just simply can't do that. Um, and this is so interesting. Everything you're telling me about, about these Creed movies, you can see Michael B. Jordan's, anime fandom coming to the fore like in the same way that james wan strips down ideas into like very elemental horror tropes about parenthood all of these movies that james Wan that uh jordan's involved in are really like elemental shonen tropes of like you know the the student and the and the teacher and the son and the father and the you know try your very best and fight for your you know to revolutionize the world or whatever um Good for him for just making anime. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it makes a lot of sense, too, because there's something that bothers me about him where his performances are like are are too big. And mm -hmm. I feel like they are anime performances. Yeah, he's he's a cartoon. You watch Michael B. Jordan and you watch like Kenny Omega and AEW and like these are the same person. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. He does remind me of a pro wrestler because, like, the snarl that he has is so, like, because every time in these Creed movies, he says something like, oh, what, you doubt me? And then he, like, snarls at Rocky. And it's like, 
just like, like no dial it back. Says, no one says that. No one says that in out of their mouth. Like, mm-hmm. and but that, they do if they're dubbing something that a Japanese person said. Yeah, because like, <laughs> like oftentimes in anime, they are saying a thing that's that that is in someone's internal monologue, mm-hmm. where it's like because yeah, exposition and also the way the Japanese language works is different. And stuff that, like, makes sense in Japanese doesn't translate the same way and, like, isn't, like, culturally we just don't talk the same way. And even to, like, the, a lot of the, um, Japanese verbalizes, huh? In ways that, you know, we don't do in English. But Michael B. Jordan's performances are absolutely, like, colored by the fact that he's a giant weeb. (laughs) (laughs) which is adorable uh but and it's not just pro any pro wrestler but kenny omega specifically who plays an anime villain basically um he's massively influenced by japanese culture and so yeah i mean killmonger is i mean even his armor was like he got the costume designer to structure it to look like vegeta's say in armor he's a big dork and um it's delightful but it also it requires a certain kind of understanding of like the heightened realism that you have to be prepared for when you walk into a Creed movie because Adonis Creed is going to say shit that no human would ever say. Yeah, I mean, they just don't. <laughs> no one talks that way. It's like, yeah, because like it, like a, a a normal piece of dialogue from like Dragon Ball Z is something like Krillin being like, I, I have to at least try for Goku. He's my friend. It's like, <laughs> who are you talking to? You're talking to yourself. Yeah. The audio. That was a good Krillin, by the way. Yeah, no, I watched a lot of that. Watched a lot of DBC. Yeah, <laughs> but um, it, it's so weird. Yeah, because like, but all the Creed movies are people like saying their emotions out loud. And like, that's not how acting works. But it is how anime works, and specifically like Dragon Ball Z style shown in anime. Um, yeah, and so I mean, I I I'm so like tickled by the fact that he's just gotten people to bankroll his like live action anime adaptations of the anime that lives in his head about boxing like good for him <laughs> but um i don't know if i want to watch them uh, though jonathan and it'll be interesting to see specifically what jonathan majors does because he's so method and you know did he sit down with michael b jordan and watch like a bunch of anime you see what kind of performance is he gonna give because he is absolutely capable of doing like a really heightened absurd performance to match whatever michael b jordan has going on and in some ways i think if he does anything less than that he does it a disservice like if it's going to be this massive melodrama Mm -hmm. then he might as well like crank it up to 11 so that he makes sense otherwise he's kind of leaving michael b jordan hanging out to dry yeah no they're they're whatever their conversations are like in the new movie are going to be fucking crazy to behold. Um, yeah. I'm excited for that. So let me, let me just run by uh, run, run by you. Buck run by you. A couple of movies that are coming out in March still doesn't make sense in my head. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've been working with a lot of words recently. Okay. So the, there are a lot of movies that are coming out in March and I want you to, to sort of react to some of these and sort of measure your interest. 
So Creed okay. 3 is the first one. Uh, not interested, excited for him, happy for him. Probably not going to watch it. Scream 6 is coming out Friday. I am. This might be the movie that finally convinces me to go back and start to watch, start watching Scream movies. Yeah. Uh, we talked about him a bunch. I just watched Megan. We're in this like, you know, going back and revisiting 90s stuff right now. Uh, I'm interested. I think you should. So what is what is really interesting is that when they did the Scream, the reboot, Scream 5, um, and they cast, you know, they, and they casted the actors. I don't think they realized that they were casting in one of the lead roles. Um, probably the most famous actors of her generation at this point and Jenna Ortega. And so mm -hmm. like they are, I mean, sky's the limit for this shit. I mean, they'll, they'll make as many as she wants to make. And what is so fascinating to me about somebody who is so young and she's in her early twenties is the quality of her projects. Like for me, this is, unprecedented i can't think of anybody maybe like leonardo dicaprio he had like he had like excellent judgment all throughout his 20s but most people like their their career starts off they hit it big and then they have like some pitfalls and you know some rocky shit here and there see adrian brody who we talked about um mm -hmm. She it does. I mean, they they might be still to come, but she's just fucking knocking it out the park with every single project that she does. And the Scream Six uh, reviews are out, and people are loving this fucking movie too. And so she just keeps winning and winning and winning. And so I'm excited to follow her career because she's she has like impeccable judgment, which is impossible to do now, especially where there's just a deluge of probably of options in front of her at this point. Yeah, and some of those options like. You can turn in an excellent performance and it's going to get chopped up in the editing room anyway, or you'll get half of a script and it's all on green screen, like a bunch of bullshit. So I think, I'm sure it's. I think maybe that's the key is that she has not gotten sucked into the marvel of it all. Yeah, she hasn't made a marvel movie yet. <laughs> right, exactly. As soon as that happens, ooh, watch out. Uh, okay, so then Shazam Fury of the Gods is coming out. I'm very excited about that. Um, Maul has. No interest in the Shazam movies, so I'm gonna. I mean, I'll watch it on probably HBO Max, uh, when it comes out. But like, it's got Lucy Liu, it's got um, Dame Helen Mirren. Uh, yeah, Dame Helen Mirren in it. Uh, looks sweet. I'm stoked. Yeah. Um, John Wick Chapter Four. We watched the first John Wick, and it was fine. I don't know. Um, I think the yeah. fight choreography is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it just didn't, it didn't really stick with me. And I think the problem is I love Keanu Reeves as a comic actor, and I don't like my own private Idaho and Bill and Ted. And, you know, that is my happy place with Keanu. And his, and I, this is kind of like Michael B. Jordan. Like, I'm very happy for him that he's able to live out his, like, comic book action kung fu fantasies here and make a bunch of these movies and i just don't really care about them or buy him as an action hero <laughs> even though he obviously is one of the most bankable yeah. action stars of all time it just it just doesn't really work for me so i don't know i watched the first one it was fine i like a lot of the the 
the actors and it's weird john wick is the sort of thing that like should appeal to me because it's got you know my kind of like secret society comic book bullshit that i tend to like of you got your assassins and you got your clandestine organizations and your 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 hotel where all they all get contracts and like a bunch of cloak and dagger shit and it just eh. yeah i mean you're you haven't even broached really the the machinations of the high table you haven't right yeah, and all of the extended Lord, like ian mcshane and yeah. yeah Lawrence fishburne plays morpheus in the in in the third movie like the <laughs> The lore so bins out in a way that is, I think, that you would appreciate and that is, like, incredibly fascinating. I mean, you haven't even met the TikTok man. Like, you haven't met the tracker. Like, these these movies are full of that kind of, like, weird secret society, vague nonsense. Like, John Wick Chapter 4 is about him, uh, uh, like, breaching the high tables operations, which is a sentence that makes no sense. Like the, the movies are like designed to be for like world builder nerds. So yeah, truly. See, I I might need to sit down again. I'm not going to, mall's not going to join me on this journey. I I don't think, but I am, I am interested in, although I found the first one to be kind of underwhelming. um, I know that there's a bunch of ridiculous lore that I probably would really like. So I'll I'll have to go back and revisit those. And so after that, Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves is out. Yeah, it sure is. Um it looks like it's gonna suck. I mean, <laughs> I was gonna say the opposite. This movie looks like it's gonna fucking rule. Really? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I yeah. am here's the thing. I'm gonna watch it because I'm I am a sucker for owl bears specifically. And like there's an owl bear character creature that seems to appear uh very heavily featured in the film. And I think that's an awesome character design. They're very clearly like we are not we're gonna like stay very close to na- name dropping creatures from the lore and you know what the weird thing to me about this movie is simply that they're not doing any of the R.A. Salvatore stuff. Like they've got all of the Drizzt Dorden storyline, they've got all of those Dragonlance books, and they're like, eh, Chris Pine, I guess, as a bard, it'll be fun. I'm like, okay, I don't know how fun that is to me, but if it lives in, you know, that kind of space, uh, yeah, it could be cool. But, like, this is not a Dungeons and Dragons story that takes place within the world of Dungeons and Dragons. Like, is, isn't is isn't it, like, about being in a Dungeons and Dragons game? I think so. I think the idea is that it's a campaign. Right. And, and they know, and, and somebody in the movie knows that. I don't know if that's true. Or maybe I've missed that. Um, but oh. it would make sense to me that the pitch for this film was, hey, people, Dungeons & Dragons got popular again during quarantine. Everybody loved the Dungeons & Dragons stuff that was in Stranger Things. Let's do a... F- and everybody loves Critical Role and the D20 shit. And, like, let's do a movie that feels like a high-budget Critical mm-hmm. Role thing. I... That's not appealing to me. Um, I find that kind of like watch a gr- of a, a different group of friends that you don't know have fun together 
loses a lot of its luster because like I have fun with my group of friends because I get all the inside jokes and sort of building a parasocial relationship with a bunch of other people um, doesn't appeal to me in the same way. And Dungeons and Dragons campaigns, there's a lot of like air in them uh, because it's like people goofing around, people taking side quests, people trying to like, you know, pop the boys and make jokes. And that's great when it's your friends and you get the jokes. And when it's other people, um, when you step outside that, what it means is that it's a bloated narrative with too much wasted time and space. Whereas like the Drist Word and stuff is like heavy lore, very specific, has a goal, has an idea. So this could be like a comic, hey, we're kind of like it. Chris Pine plays a bard. They're like screwing around. They fail miserably because they're all kind of like doofuses the way you would if you were playing a game of Dungeons & Dragons with your friends. That kind of comedy is incredibly difficult to pull off in a way that's satisfying on screen and not just kind of like boring or at a secondhand embarrassing even. So I think it walks a thin line. Right. But it might be very popular if it hits the, like, thing that people really seem to like about Critical Role. I wish, you know, we'll have to get Teddy on the show because I know he's a big fan of that stuff. I, it hasn't, I don't understand the appeal and I would love for him to, like, school us and explain it to us. Because I'm expecting that you're exactly right that this movie is trying to capture that kind of magic and not the kind of, like, high fantasy 90s Dristoward and soap opera. Yeah, and I think it's it's because that is not that because we were talking about how like the the high fantasy stuff hasn't aged in a way that is contemporary, and yes. I think that and it's weird that this guy's at the root of so many things, but I think Dan Harmon's influence is huge on this movie. Yep. I think you're right because and not just the community episode because the community episode was massive because the community episode was let us write a story with a frame narrative that you know these people are playing Dungeons and Dragons which intrinsically is boring it is boring to watch people play Dungeons and Dragons mm -hmm. it's not boring to participate in a game of Dungeons and Dragons and so yes. how do we like make the the watching of this tabletop game interesting and they did it largely by focusing on what was happening in the game itself and so the characters become proxies for the the stories and so they are operating in the world of dungeons and dragons but it's also like this 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 other thing where you're you're constantly aware that they're not within that world that there's something else happening mm -hmm. there's other dynamics surrounding the game itself that is very interesting, the way that he did that in 22 minutes. The other thing that he did was a show called Harmon Quest, which was, I believe, on CISO. So um, you can never watch it again, uh, evidently. <laughs> uh, but did you watch Harmon Quest? No, I know it was incredibly popular and had that same kind of self-aware. It was so good. I was like, baffled and it is it benefits because they do edit the show and they only animate the parts that are interesting right and so they do a whole mm -hmm. campaign. you cut out the air you cut out all the bullshit and you animate 
in and in a very interesting animation style, you know, what these people are improvising and you get good improvisers to do the the to 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 do the campaign. And so I think that the success of those two things and the appeal of those two things and the resurgence of Dungeons and Dragons during the quarantine influenced this movie. I feel like if they take Well the certainly and this is this is what Critical Role folks took to the bank. Like they got animated shows on Amazon. Yeah. Because they had this massively popular web series of, you know, doing a little bit of editing and they were animating bits and pieces of this the same way. And they they understood and they had people, you know, folks that listeners or watchers glommed onto and, and found uh connections with. And it was that same kind of like watching what they do in the game, but also watching their relationships with each other outside the game. And so you're totally right. Like that is obviously very popular and in a way that, you know, the sort of straightforward Lord of the Rings style high fantasy is not right now. It's not to my taste. And my concern is that it will be as heavily influenced by the Ryan Reynoldsification of quote unquote, you know, action comedy as it is by this kind of idea. And so my fear is like, you know, a Hollywood treatment of self-aware meta humor is going to sound like every bad MCU anti-joke that we've been hearing Chris Pratt say for the last 10 years. And Chris Pratt, Chris Pine, who is a far superior actor, yeah. still runs the risk of playing that character far too like smarmily i guess is the word i'm looking for yeah. um, and that could be insufferable so it's a risky venture but i understand why they're doing it it makes total sense from a like a numbers perspective of it's gonna make money um the question is are the same people who subscribe to critical role and watch the amazon show going to watch this because a lot of those people critical role has spun off its own like they're they're now their own entity and there's been all this drama of uh wizards of the coast trying to like crack down on you know with their botched rules announcements so probably that doesn't matter because i think this movie although it's living in that space is more designed for people who watch stranger things and got into dnd that way than it is for people who are massively invested in like the critical role stuff and care about what well, you know the controversies just one point on that according to imdb the critical role guys are in the movie oh fascinating i wonder if they were involved in writing this at all <laughs> that no the guy who wrote it is the guy that wrote uh spider-man homecoming um john francis daly who's you know a fine writer okay i liked homecoming yeah it's fine um, but it is like, yeah, that it, it, you're making a good point. I think that the thing that Dan Harmon does that is like the 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 thing that Dan Harmon does that's great that Ryan that is counter to what Ryan Reynolds does, which is horrible, is that Dan Harmon respects ultimately the material that he is yes working with. Where Ryan Reynolds, and this is, is the difference between yeah, like a Star Trek Lower Decks, where like it's or like a Galaxy Quest of we're making jokes but we love it's coming from a place of love as opposed to a place of total disdain and that's why deadpool and detective pikachu work yeah when ryan reynolds like loves deadpool and like 
appreciates the world of Pokemon is a big nerd and like enjoys that as opposed to like I don't know uh Blade Three <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, know, yeah where he like couldn't give a fuck and hates everything yeah or Red Notice where he literally looks at the rock and goes get a load of this fucking guy he's yeah right. he sucks right like, yeah, and like you, yes, you're right, but I don't need you to break my suspension of disbelief by reminding me that the rock sucks. I'm fully aware of that. <laughs> I try to live in a world for a moment where he doesn't, so I can enjoy this film. Do you, do you, <laughs> you think that it is? You do you think it is fair to say that Dan Harmon is one of the most, if not the most, influential creators of the 21st century? I think that Dan Harmon has replaced Joss Whedon as, like, the most problematic, most influential, like, piece of shit human being who has also, uh, like, totally changed the way everybody writes scripts. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that they're not comparable on that level. Like. Am I thinking of somebody else who just got canceled? Isn't Dan Harmon... No, 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 no. Dan Harmon. Who am I thinking of? I don't know. Isn't Dan Harmon the Rick and Morty guy? And then like the uh, you're you're thinking of Justin Roiland, the other. Oh God, oh the other guy. Yeah, Justin Roiland is the is the horrible. I'm sorry, Dan Harmon. I thought yeah, I was conflating these two people. Yeah, no, Dan Harmon has a lot of issues. Um, that is for sure. But Um, they're like personal issues and not like issues that he's made other people's lives hell the same way that Justin Roiland did. (laughs) He had one incident with a writer on Community, uh, a woman named Megan Gans, who is a, a a great writer and a producer on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia now. And she wrote uh, on Community for a while. She's actually their the producer on their podcast. And cool. he had he had made imp- improper advances and stuff like that. And he went on this sort of like twenty minute thing on his podcast where he took accountability for it, and he apologized and and. She accepted his apology. Um, it was like so he's the anti-Justin Rowland, where they are like bizarro versions of each other. <laughs> yeah, and by all accounts, it wasn't like patterned behavior because, like Justin Roiland, mm-hmm. you know, uh, apparently, according to like people who have obliquely stated uh, things, you know, without getting sued by him, uh, they have people have not seen him really that much working behind the scenes on Rick and Morty and, and other projects that he's involved with. He's kind of MIA. He only shows up to do like voice stuff. Um, and so he's also, he's, he's already been sort of like detached from the sort of creative side of that show. Hmm. And so it hadn't, it hasn't been causing a problem with the show, but then when all of the shit came out, it was like, by all accounts, very unsurprising. The interesting, the, the 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 stuff that eventually came to light and then getting rid of him was like so easy to do because he wasn't (laughs) (laughs) he's not really involved that's fascinating okay yes i remember dan Harmon had a bunch of like personal struggles yeah um that he kind of yeah then you can see him sort of working through his own issues through the character of rick Um, but like what he writes for a lot of these characters so anyway my apologies to dan Harmon. I'm I agree with you that his comedy and his writing style are incredibly influential, both uh, both in the kind of coaching tree aspect of like all of the writers and people that he's that, you know, Kevin Feige has basically taken from him, Um, but also in the way that his comedy and his 
uh, style has affected the way movies are made. So, um, yeah, the personal bullshit aside, I do think it's fair to compare him his impact to the impact of somebody like Joss Whedon of the way people are aping that style, the way it's changed how we consume comedy and like action comedy and some of that sci-fi stuff. Yeah, no, it's just so weird to 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 have him be involved in all of these things sort of like tangentially, like a fucking honestly like a dungeon master. <laughs> just like well, yeah, that's a good point. Pulling the strings so, of the MCU and shit. Yeah, I mean, so we, we've gone around in circles here, but I think we we sort of unpacked and uncovered the real core of most of this fandom related properties and the way these get adapted is is it done from a place of love and respect or is it done from sort of like a place of crass um uh, exploitation and you can tell yeah and you can this we can see this in star trek so somebody made a point about you know the things like picard which are i mean all, more power to Patrick Stewart for like he's got a story he wants to tell at least with the first season but a lot of that stuff is in Discovery it's dark it's gritty it's very much like seeped in a negative very cynical idea about what like a sci-fi show should be and then things like Strange New Worlds and Lower Decks are coming from a Galaxy Quest angle of we love the material we have optimism about humans <laughs> Um, and we are trying to tell stories that are affirming. And I think that what will make or break this Dungeons and Dragons movie is, is it coming from a place of we are having fun with these people exploring this fantasy and like, it's it's about teamwork and it's about nonlinear thinking. It's about like problem solving with your friends. And if it is, it'll be delightful. And if it's a like, oh, I'll get a load of this, these nerds, um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's going to be unwatchable and I don't know which way it's going to fall. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I was thinking about it cause I was passing, uh, I was at target and we were about to check out and they have like all like that book rack in the front mm-hmm. and they had a dungeons and dragons novelization prequel to the movie. And I was like, what wow. the fuck is this? And I started leafing through yeah. it. Like, should I read this? It was only like 150 pages long. Um, I'll wait. I've for... heard they've created stat blocks for the movie characters so you can have them in your games. Um, cool. I mean, it's cool. Yeah, if the movie so, hits. yeah, if the movie hits, it's going to be great. And like, I've already bought that. They have a whole line of, they call them dicelings, like little, I've got this dragon here by my desk. Um, and yeah, it's a cool little dragon toy, but it it's a transformer. And it folds up into a 20-sided die oh, and then, like, cool. unfolds into a creature. And they've got, like, a, a an owl bear and a beholder and, you know, a bunch of other creatures. And so they're, like, you know, full steam ahead on the merchandising, obviously, because it's a Hasbro property. Um, but it's cool. Like, I, I'm happy that Dungeons & Dragons is mainstream now. I think there's a lot of benefit there. You know, as long as, again, like we said, it comes from a place of, like, collaborative problem solving and having fun with your friends and not like uh wall nerds uh isn't this dumb ryan reynolds thing so we'll see yeah um that'll do it for this episode of is this just bad 
Stay off social media, please. Don't go on. And if you go on, don't hashtag restore the Snyderverse. It's dead. Email us at isthisjustbad at gmail.com. <laughs> Bye. Is this just bad? Bad? It's like what pirates forge your brain, robbing knowledge, no joking. Opening your mind with a crowbar till you're woken, hitting Hydra, hailing hairs, half a time for hella reasons. We're more than winter soldiers, with the men for all seasons. Listen closely while we share our expertise in cosmic comics culture. Dean is free tuition to the multiversity. Mouse is like we're teaching perfect balance when we snap infinite gems into your ears. Dust our shoulders when we speak. Purple men persuasive feet. Where Randy Savage rattles with their mortal technique. Ooh.